0: Remember that vitamins and minerals are the cornerstones, the building blocks. If you're building a house, you need bricks, you need wood, you need a foundation, right? Well, if you're building your body's house, you need vitamins and minerals. So measuring those things to make sure your body has what it needs is definitely one of those fundamental types of of sets of tests that need to be looked at to help you understand how you need to change your diet, what foods you need to eat more of, and what supplements you might need to add in your diet for a time to help your body repair.
1: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective, natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Today, we are talking about going beyond gluten free and how your diet can make or break your hormone health with Dr. Peter Osborne. I know that there is still a lot of confusion around what it means to be gluten-free or why it matters and how certain foods can have a massive impact on our hormone system. But this is an area that Dr. Peter Osborne has studied at great length and he is about to drop some serious knowledge on us today. But before we get into the nitty gritty on the power of food and its impact on our hormones as a body as a whole. I wanted to just quickly mention that a big part of my new book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution, touches upon a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. See, over the past two months, I've had the opportunity to connect with a lot of my readers and podcast listeners. And one of the biggest questions that comes up is what to eat to balance hormones. I mean, I think that we all understand that what we eat and how we eat impacts the way that our body functions on a day-to-day basis. Now, when I was writing this book, Part three of this book, which is chapters 15 through 19, I really wanted to be able to tackle this area, and I felt like I had been developing how to eat for hormones for quite some time, practically 10 years. This was probably one of the favorite parts of this book that I wrote because I wanted to be able to give you a blueprint. I wanted to be able to give you what you needed in terms of food, meal plans, even hormone loving food lists. That you could feel confident creating a jumpstart plan to your hormone recovery now as of now i know that there are over a thousand women who have committed to doing the 14-day rescue plan in part three of the book and have seen amazing results women have decreased inflammation because that was a big part of why i created that program is how do we eliminate the foods that don't serve so that we can decrease elimination in the gut the liver and the brain We've seen women improve their mood, decrease anxiety. We've seen women sleep better. I've even seen women losing weight if that's what their body needed to do. See, what I have found is when our hormones are out of whack, we can tend to hold on to weight that we don't want to hold on to. I've also found that when we're inflamed or in our immune system, it's feeling a little bit out of control. We tend to hold on to weight because our bodies feel unsafe. And what's been so great about this 14-day recovery plan, this rescue plan, is that so many women have lost in the double digits, 10 plus pounds after reducing inflammation and resetting metabolic hormones. Now, one particular essential oil hormone solutions reader is Stephanie, and I'm excited to shout out her win as she shared in one of my Facebook groups earlier last week. Here's her testimonial. I have been doing Dr. Marisa's hormone rescue plan in the book for the past three weeks, and I'm honestly a bit surprised by my results. I'm pretty much following the meal plan with some modifications. My hot flashes decreased. My mid afternoon slumps are not happening anymore. I'm not feeling as anxious and I've lost nine pounds so far. The biggest win has been my digestive issues. I'm not bloated and uncomfortable after meals and I'm planning to continue this plan for at least two more weeks because I'm feeling so good. Well, I want to just say thank you so much, Stephanie, for sharing your big win and committing to your health. As you guys know, I'm so happy to shout you out. If you're listening, Stephanie, I want to gift you my Superwoman blend. And all you got to do is just reach out to me on Facebook. Luckily, that's where we connected, or on Instagram at Dr. Marisa. I want to let you know that I wrote part three of the book with you in mind. If you don't have this book already and want to check it out, I will have the link in the show notes, or you can go to my book bonus page, which is drmarisa.com slash hormone book. All right. Now that I shared that, that I felt was such a big tie to this particular episode, let's dive into this incredible conversation with going beyond gluten-free with Dr. Peter Osborne. But first, before we do that, I do want to sing his praises. Dr. Peter Osborne is a clinical director of Origins Healthcare in Sugarland, Texas. He's a world renowned expert in the field of gluten and grain sensitivity and one of the most sought out functional doctors in the country. He's the author of the highly acclaimed bestseller, No Grain, No Pain, published by Simon & Schuster. Dr. Osborne is a doctor of chiropractic, board certified in clinical nutrition, and he is all about root cause medicine. He's been featured on Fox News, CBS, PBS, and many other amazing publications. Now let's get into this interview. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peter Osborne. Peter, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: I am so thrilled. I have been looking forward to our conversation for weeks now. And today is the day.
0: Today's is the day.
1: Today's the day. So what we're gonna be talking about, and so much of your conversations are going beyond gluten-free, because I know that's such a that is what your expertise is in. But today, because of my audience, which I'm so grateful that you are tailoring to my amazing women, we're gonna be talking about how your diet can make or break your hormone health. But before we get into that, I would love to know a little bit about your story. What brought you into this, what I consider to be such an important topic today, but a topic that's still people are needing a little bit of guidance on?
0: Well, I started actually early on in in graduate school. I was fortunate enough to be a part of a very aggressive rotation program through the hospital system. And one of the rotations I was able to serve through was, was the rheumatology department at the VA hospital. And being a veteran myself, what what I saw there really it baffled me, but it also angered me. And in, in this sense, what we were doing is there were you know all these veterans that were coming through the hospital with rheumatological disease, autoimmune disease, if you will, like diseases predominantly of their joints and muscles, a lot of pain. Basically, the standard of care, the standard protocol there was give them anti-cancer medications, give them immune-suppressing steroids, give them immune-suppressing and pain suppressing drugs, but don't really ask why their pain exists or why their disease exists. And so they, we would medicate these people into the ground to such a great degree that then when their health had deteriorated because the medicines caused a severity of different side effects, then they'd have a scheduled day where the surgeons would come in and they'd say, you're a candidate for joint replacement surgery. And so then the surgeons Would schedule them for surgery. So to me, it was almost like a mill. They'd go through years of being drugged. And then when their health was destroyed by the drugs, the surgeons would come in. And I thought, this is terrible. And so I tried to introduce some new thought processes to the powers that be in the hospital. I brought in research on autoimmune disease and how we actually knew a cause for autoimmune disease with a model of celiac disease. Everybody who's ever studied gluten sensitivity knows that celiac disease Is caused by gluten, it's autoimmune, and here we had all these autoimmune people that basically nobody had ever entertained the idea that gluten may also play a role in their disease too, and so I just brought that to the attention and brought research to back it up, and and they told me to quit thinking about nutrition, and then I said, well, okay, well, let's try a different approach, so then I brought research into my attendings and said, look, fasting can actually eliminate pain within 48 hours in many of these people, and here's research that proves it. And I was told no again. And then I went back to the drawing board again and said, look, hey, fish oil, right? We can prescribe fish oil. Fish oil can actually reduce pain as effectively as non anti-inflammatories that destroy the gut and cause leaky gut. And again, I was told no. And so in ultimate frustration, I left. And one of my very first patients in private practice was a little girl. Now, she, she, her name was Ginger. She was brought to me when she was nine years old. And here's the story behind that. Her, her mom actually had noticed at around two years of age that Ginger was struggling. She was, she was having a lot of skin rashes. She was having a lot of gastrointestinal problems. As things progressed, she received a diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And she'd gone through seven years of heavy medication treatment. So unlike the adult veterans I was seeing in the VA hospital, this little girl went through seven years of methotrexate and other immune suppressing medications until the point where the doctors looked at her mom and said, you're going to have to go home and prepare for her funeral. There's nothing more we can do for her. I was like the ninth doctor in this lineup of, of experts and specialists, which also makes me mad because I should have been the first doctor. But our system is, it works in such a crazy way that that most people believe you drug the disease's symptoms into remission and you continue to have the same behaviors that allowed the disease to exist in the first place. But but anyway, we found that this little girl, that Ginger had a gluten sensitivity. We found that she was allergic to certain foods. And within six months, she had a permanent stent embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so frequently. Within six months, her pain was gone. We had the stent out of her arm. And within a year, she was in complete remission. And today, when we look back, today she's graduated from college and she's out in the world doing wonderful things. And she had a six-month life sentence at the age of nine, because a system that was being forced down her throat, basically, was so broken and so backwards. And it got me thinking, look, how many cases of autoimmune disease do we have in our world? You know, just in the United States alone, it's estimated 46 million. Because up to that point, for me, it was all theoretical, right? I had all this research that I'd done. I had this experience, but it didn't actually get applied until I met Ginger, and we saved her life within six months. And so I knew this information had to get into the hands of 46 million people who were suffering with autoimmune disease. So that's where it all began. And I started at that point, I started Gluten-Free Society. I started publishing and I started uh, writing articles and started getting the information out into the hands of the masses because I knew that we weren't going to convince the other doctors to make a change. So we had to let the consumers know. We had to let the patients know that we could empower them to make changes and save their own lives.
1: I love that this has been your crusade because- and I think about as you were telling the story about the vets in the hospital and and what is definitely sounding like a mill, but I'm, I'm guessing that even in the hospital, they were being fed a lot of gluten the whole time, which is just so heartbreaking. Now, a lot of us are struggling with autoimmunity and I would love for you to give, I'd love for you to kind of just for a moment, I know this is such a deep conversation and particularly a deep topic, but even if someone isn't struggling with autoimmunity, and I want to talk a little bit about the causes of that could gluten still have an impact on their gut, an impact on their joints, impact on their brain fog? Can I make an assumption that a lot of us should be looking at lessening or completely eradicating the amount of gluten we eat every day?
0: I think the answer to the simple answer to that is absolutely yes. It goes well beyond gluten, and we'll talk more about that I think today, but it's true in the sense that there are a lot of people, there's an estimated 30 to 40% of the population that are gluten sensitive. That's kind of where we stand at this point. So can we make the argument that no one should ever eat gluten? I don't know scientifically that we could make that argument, but I think we could argue that 30 to 40% of the people out there that are struggling, whether even whether they have autoimmune disease or not, they may have other issues in their health that they just don't recognize as a food-based problem, could definitely benefit by changing their diet in that direction.
1: I would say a lot of what's happening with us Food is driving that. And I know in particular, we're going to be having the conversation around how diet, what we put in our mouth, the the information, the fuel that we put in our mouth every day can either make or break your hormone health. And I'm so excited to have that conversation. But let's talk a little bit about autoimmunity because as you and I know, autoimmunity can be relatively undetected. So many people are going undiagnosed. You know, let's just name one particular autoimmune condition that a lot of the women that I serve are struggling with or don't even know they have, which is Hajimoto's. And we know that Hajimoto's can be driven by a by a gluten sensitivity. So tell me a little bit about what are some of the things that we should be looking out for when it comes to autoimmunity.
0: If you're looking for symptoms, particularly what we see in women really on average now again this is this is on average in my experience and i've been practicing for almost 20 years number one what we see is we see that this common phrase that is repeated over and over and over again which is around the age of 35 i feel like my body started falling apart and things just started going wrong so if that if that sounds like you it's very possible that the accumulation of life choices diet choices stress, et cetera, has led up to a point where there's an active autoimmune disease inside of you that has been unrecognized. And that can manifest as hair loss fatigue. It can manifest as low libido. It can manifest as brain fog, particularly a lot of women suffer dramatically from being able to even just recall simple words. Like they they know what they want to say, they just can't bring it to their lips. Those are really super common. IBS is another very, very super common symptom of, of autoimmunity, a kind of recognizing IBS irritable bowel syndrome, not inflammatory bowel syndrome, but irritable bowel. So like intermittent constipation, diarrhea, gas bloating, gastrointestinal distress, those types of symptoms are very, very common uh, that we see. And generally, like you said, you know, Hashimoto's or, or hypothyroidism is a form of autoimmunity that generally won't get diagnosed until about the mid- third decade of life to the fourth decade of life. So 35s and 40s is when we generally see the diagnosis happening because it's at that point that a woman feels bad enough that they seek out a professional to basically help them understand what's going
1: on. Being a hajimoto person myself, I didn't recognize the symptoms until I was 35 years old. And I had struggled with hormone issues before and I had made some amazing headway with that and thought maybe I would be able to circumvent the hajimotos, but didn't. So I can absolutely, on a personal level, absolutely relate to that. And I agree, when women start to really not feel well, it's usually usually interconnected to some type of autoimmunity, but also definitely playing a role on hormones. So I wanna pivot the conversation a little bit and I wanna talk a little bit about specifically how diet can make or break our hormones. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the power of food. I would just love to hear what, what do you think about what food can do for us in a general sense?
0: Food is probably the most under-recognized important aspect to health. And here's why we've got about 50 years of medical education that emphasizes how unimportant food is. We've got a social paradigm that's been created falsely around how processed food is acceptable and good for us and food additives are perfectly fine and adding and dousing our food and, and pesticides and, and other hormone changing chemicals is another perfectly fine thing to not have to worry about. I mean, in the na- all in the name of food, we've, we've kind of taken food to the level of food equals love socially. You know, how many times have you gone to a family member's house and and they, they, they want to feed you, right? That's how they show their love is they bake you something nice or they want to feed you something nice. When the reality is, you know, the way I look at food is much more stoically. Not everybody will agree with me here, but food is warfare. And what I mean by that is that your gut is actually a quarantine zone. Your gut, to, the tube from your mouth to your anus is a, is a quarantine chamber and its job is to take What is in the food that is good that your body needs, the amino acids, the carbohydrates, the fats, the proteins, the vitamins, the minerals, and pull those in so that your body can use them in the process of healing and repair and maintenance, maintaining your metabolic function. The opposite of that is to expel the waste. So we take the good from and we expel the bad. And in order to do that, we have to keep the bad quarantined out, right? That's why the gut doesn't have a direct attachment to our bloodstream. Things have to go through the gut and be allowed into the bloodstream through all these different checks and balances. And so if your gut is not healthy or if your gut is compromised, and there are a number of different things that can do it, many of the things that compromise gut function, like overuse of antibiotics, drinking water that's chlorinated because chlorine acts as an antibiotic, a number of different medications, including birth control pill and estrogen-related hormones, can actually disrupt gut function drinking out of plastics a lot of women use cosmetics that have phthalates these phthalates leach into the skin that can disrupt the gut barrier creating leaky gut so you've got all these normal natural things that people do that can disrupt the health of their gi tract and even if you were eating perfectly healthy food understand that you know like for example in blueberries there's still bacteria there's still the potential that there are microorganisms in that food that are dangerous you again your gut's health can separate the good from the bad. But if your gut's health is suffering, then you become basically a victim of an intestinal permeability. And we all, we we know in science that the number one precursor to development of autoimmune disease is intestinal permeability. So looking at that from a food perspective, how important is food? it's the number one factor that you have power over that you can control and change on a daily basis. You can't control stress, you can't control other people and how they bring stress into your life or you can end relationships certainly, but you know, you you know with your family for example, you go to your family's house on the weekend or something like that. You can't control how much stress somebody else brings into your life like sometimes relationships they may be toxic but they're still people that you love, right? So you can't control that. You can't control the air outside, you can't control the weather but you can control food to 100% degree.
1: It's the most
0: powerful element that we can control. So we should be paying attention to how it can impact us.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, Peter, is your family doesn't even have to be over for them to impact you. They could just send you a text message.
0: (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's very true.
1: So you're absolutely right. 100%. I don't necessarily consider it to be warfare but I always think I always I always say to my patients or to the women that I'm serving is that you know food can either heal or kill you. We really have opt- you know it can definitely spiral one way or the other. So and yes, I agree that blueberries even blueberries could have microbes, you know. You see those outbreaks of like spinach and romaine and you know people are like jumping off the wagon to not eat greens but we can really make a lot of impact in the food that we're consuming. I mean, it can really be the thing that changes everything for us. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we look at just as a perfect example, if you eat non-conventional GMO food, for example, let's just say it, an era of genetically modified corn, okay, because it's a form of grain But if we're just looking at it from the perspective of the pesticide, the pesticide itself actually mimics estrogen. So if we're talking about how food could impact a woman's hormone levels, Mm -hmm. and estrogen dominance is a very, very common problem in today's world. And, And one of the reasons why is so many of the foods that we eat have so many pesticides in them that mimic estrogen, that women develop estrogen dominance, and it increases the risk for cancer. It increases the risk for heart disease, among other things. Too much estrogen actually disrupts the biochemistry of B vitamins. So now it can lead to B vitamin deficiency, which can cause fatigue. So that's just in pesticides alone. We're not even talking about gluten or grains.
1: Right. No more tortillas, ladies. We, no. But you're absolutely right. We're just talking about just the pesticides alone is going to change the gut permeability. But not only that, as you mentioned, bringing in the synthetic hormones, the, the xenoestrogens that are causing issues. But let's just talk about even particularly you know, just the standard diet, you know, the woman who it's three o'clock in the afternoon and she's probably due to the lifestyle that's happening, or maybe it's an autoimmunity that she's unaware of, but at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, after staring down that donut all day, Peter, and saying no to it, eventually she caves, right? And so often, you know, I find that this is this kind of negative feedback loop. And a lot of what I I, I educate um, my patients on is the impact it's having on our insulin levels, the in- impact it's having on leptin, and how that is then creating a lot of the other hormone issues that we're seeing in women. What I really want to go with this is, how can we help people really begin to shift the way that our body's functioning? You know, I have a, I have a program. It's a, a hormone detox that really is designed to use food hormone. What I call them hormone loving foods to really shift our metabolic hormones. So would you be open to talking to me a little bit about the impact that end up eating at that donut that day because they're exhausted and tired and their, their brain isn't functioning. It's the one thing that's there, their willpower gives, but what is the implication? of eating that, that ultimately we find ourselves back in that same loop all over again.
0: I mean, the biggest impact is what it does to your biochemistry in a nutshell. I mean, there are a lot of different things that go on. So like, first and foremost, I think I should just mention that environment is stronger than willpower and more important than willpower. First of all, it's where that donut is sitting. If you have the control over the environment, then don't buy the donut and put it in your house where you know it's going to eventually break your willpower. That, I would say, is a very, very important tip for women to understand, is know that environment will always trump your willpower. Always, 100% of the time. You know, you
1: tell my husband that, Peter. He's always sneaking stuff into the house. <laughs> <laughs> And and usually I find that so often we can be good at home, but it's at the work environment, right? Where we fall apart, where some other environmental cue, some person comes into my life or your life and puts those donuts out there. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I think what a lot of women don't understand is that when your cortisol levels are high, they hijack your willpower and they significantly lower it in the cortex. And that that really doesn't lend to us eventually continuing to say no 10 times that day to that stale donut.
0: No, right, and as you, just, let's just take a branch off of what you just said, which is when your cortisol levels are high. So what happens when you eat that donut? Well, number one, that donut's gonna create a source of inflammation in your body. Now, it's not the only thing that's gonna create a source of inflammation in your body, but if you've got a number of different factors in your life that are all contributing to kind of a low-grade chronic level of consistent, persistent inflammation, food's one of them, Stress is another, being exposed to other environmental chemicals. So all these things that you're combating that have the ability to elevate your cortisol consistently over time can lower your willpower and make it easier to to kind of falter or fall off the wagon, so to speak. But number two, understand what cortisol does. Cortisol tells your liver to dump sugar. So cortisol, when when you eat foods that create inflammation, cortisol tells your liver to dump sugar. Then your blood sugar levels go up. That puts, a, for, that puts a message into your pancreas that causes it to make more insulin. This is why people develop diabetes, because under chronic stress, when they're doing things that create chronic cortisol output, it actually elevates their insulin over time, making them more and more insulin resistant. And then what follows insulin resi- resistance is typically leptin resistance, leptin being the hormone secreted by fat cells that regulates your satiety or regulates whether or not you're going to feel full after eating something. So now, you never feel satisfied. Your blood sugars are riding naturally higher. When your blood sugars are riding naturally higher, your liver will convert the sugar to triglycerides, and it will store those as fat. So you'll gain fat around your midsection. You'll gain fat around your heart and your visceral organs. It's what we call visceral adiposity. Even if you're thin, you can still store this type of fat around your organs. It's what we sometimes refer to as skinny fat. When somebody is chronically inflamed, they they can develop an unhealthy storage of fat around their organs internally that doesn't show up as visibly in the mirror, so to speak. But then subsequently to that, cortisol has another effect. So this high cortisol also creates and disrupts your body's ability to build lean muscle tissue. So what that means, remember, we all have a metabolic rate, meaning we all have a speed at which we burn calories even when at rest. But we can raise or lower that metabolic rate based on the quantity of lean muscle we have. But if you're doing things, eating foods that cause consistent elevation in your cortisol, then your muscle mass slowly deteriorates. And so as it slowly deteriorates, so too does your metabolic rate. It slowly lowers.
1: And is that the reason for when we're in chronic stress mode, when we're in chronic upregulation of cortisol, is that because of that fight-or-flight response that we're just burning through this muscle, or are we we breaking it down because we need it as fuel?
0: Both. So there's two things that are happening. When you're in fight-or-flight, certainly you're pumping out adrenaline, and adrenaline combined with cortisol will basically convert the way your body generates energy. That tends to lead to more adiposity and more, and more fat gain, but it also tends to lead toward an inability to properly sleep. So when you're, when you're under chronic stress, your adrenaline is going to be chronically elevated. It's going to make it hard for you to get, get a good night's sleep. And when you don't get a good night's sleep, that sets your day up and your cortisol level up all wrong because cortisol is a circadian hormone that's dependent on adequate sleep for it to re-regulate. So it's kind of dual hormone vicious cycles that can occur as a result of that, of that chronic inflammation that's induced by that donut, or, you know, we, we've done it as the example in this conversation, but, you know, I would argue that we could, we could plug in a number of different other things in there as well.
1: Okay, so we've got a situation where we're feeling stress, that stress is creating a willpower issue, someone's leaving a donut inside the break room, and that's where that willpower falls apart. We see that there is this kind of vicious cycle that happens there, but just even in that chronic stress state, there's gut permeability issues happening, but also like you said, the breakdown of muscle, and then that breakdown of muscle is negatively shifting our metabolic rate which is continuing to get us into a situation. So talk a little bit more. I would love to go more into that muscle wasting cycle. What also is happening here? What are the things that we should be concerned with? Because I know that that's can directly connected to us holding on to unwanted weight and, and weight that we can't seem to get rid of no matter, no matter what we do. I'm sure so often you have patients in your office who come to you and women who are trying everything but are not able to drop the unwanted weight. It's just like it's holding on for dear life onto their bodies.
0: And part of that is because the more muscle you lose, the slower your metabolism becomes. So now we take what you've been eating, let's say you're counting calories as many women do, or, or count points if you're using right. like one, of these, one of these systems like Weight Watchers. You may have the same caloric intake that you did before, but because your muscle is being deteriorated, your metabolism isn't as fast, so that same quantity of calories actually starts putting weight on you. You may not be eating anymore. Now, let's take that one step further. When you lose muscle, when your muscles are deteriorating or atrophying would be the word, they are also shortening. So let's think about that from the perspective of, you know, there's an old saying, square tires don't roll. Structure dictates function. So when you have a muscle that is shorter, okay, as it crosses the joint line, for example, your quadriceps, your hamstrings, and your muscles in your calf, right, your gastroc and soleus, when those muscles atrophy and shorten, they put more pressure on the cartilage in, be- in your knee joint, your meniscus. So now when you get up and you go try to exercise, but your muscles are atrophied, one, you can't do what you used to do. Two, your joints under a greater degree of pressure. So you predispose yourself to injuring yourself. And this is another common thing is women start to develop exercise intolerance because when they try to exercise, because they have the muscle atrophy and the tightening around their joints, they have a predisposition to getting injured. And when you get injured, you're out for the count. Now you can't exercise at all. You can't even you know walk normally. So it, again, it's part of that vicious cycle that muscle wasting cycle leads to joint tightening, leads to joint compression, which makes it harder to exercise. So again, what happens if women start to try to exercise, they injure themselves, then they go see the doctor over the injury. And if they go see a conventional doctor, what are they going to get? They're going to get a steroid injection. What is a steroid? Steroid is a corticosteroid. That's what started this problem in the first place was cortisol. So now you're being pumped full of more of the hormone that was creating the muscle loss in the first place that led to the injury as a solution for the injury. And if you're not being pumped with a steroid injection, oftentimes they'll give you what's called a non anti-inflammatory, which would be like ibuprofen prescription or Motrin and proxin or Celebrex, you know, one of these, again, non anti-inflammatories and understand that those that class of medication causes leaky gut. It actually, even at low doses, can cause gastric and intestinal erosions that lead to occult blood loss and leaky gut. Now, the occult blood loss can cause anemia. I see this all the time in women. It's one of the reasons why they start getting super, super tired, because they're taking this pain medication, not realizing that they're losing blood as a result of the damage that it's doing to their guts. And the blood's not coming out in their stool. It's not coming out bright red. It's coming out Occultly, and that what that means is it comes out brown, so it looks like your poop. Basically, that's what occult blood loss means, and so they develop iron deficiency anemia, and that iron deficiency makes them tired. So you you know think of it is if you're in this situation where you're sleeping ten hours and you wake up exhausted like a train ran over you, you're probably anemic, and so if that's your pattern, you might want to look at all those things concomitantly and say what am I doing wrong here? The way out of that cycle is to stop the elevation in cortisol. That's the first step, and the way that we do that is we change the diet. Remember, that's the number one thing that you can do, ultimately, to lower your cortisol, your natural cortisol excretion, in a manner that's consistent with reversing the cycle.
1: So Let's talk about the foods for that, because this is what I find so often for, for the women that I'm connecting with, is that they're trying to be all things to everyone. and. So often neglecting themselves, feeling, you know, the stress of taking care of their kids. Maybe they're taking care of their parents as well. How do we begin? And then, and most likely I remember my mom just being the super mom and running from one thing to the next. You know, she really suffered from rushing women's syndrome. You know, when you're rushing to something, you don't even know why you're rushing to it. And she was always stopping off to grab something quick, you know, in the car. So often people are doing this in this fast food nation. So what, how can we begin? What, what kind of foods, what can we do to really reset this? I know that there's, you know, there's a lot of other things, meditation, you know, making sure that you are taking time for yourself, all that self-care. I talk about essential oils for disrupting that kind of that perceived stress cycle, but I really want to focus on food today. Cause I know that's what we're talking about. What kind of foods can help get us out of this, this kind of this loop that we're in?
0: The simplest thing is real food, right? I mean, recognizing the difference between what I call pseudo food or Franken food versus real food. What I mean by that is look for organic, 100%. Some people say, I buy it as much as I can. No, don't buy it as much as you can, buy it 100%. That real food is very, very important. Food is information that your body uses to make decisions. And so if you're putting things in that are disruptive of that internal biochemical decision-making process, you're not gonna do yourself any favors. So real food part of the way I help women to determine whether or not they should be eating X, Y, or Z is through testing. I really think it's important because there's an old saying, one woman's food is another's poison. I've seen people allergic to blueberries and broccoli and chicken and beef and you name it. And so it it very well could be a person's eating a food that is actually perceived to be healthy by themselves. And it is to everyone else, but to themselves, they've developed an allergy to it as a result of a of this of this cycle contributing to leaky gut. Remember leaky gut equals acquired food allergies. So we actually start collecting food allergies the more leaky our gut is. We start And
1: collecting. it can really vary, Peter. Is that correct? Like cuz someone could literally be allergic to blueberries, which that is just heartbreaking.
0: You're absolutely right. It can vary from person to person. And and that's why I, you know my motto in the in the office is test don't guess because I can put somebody, you know I've written a book, I've written programs In those programs and books, we do generalized diet, right? There's certain foods that we say, okay, these are probably going to be inflammatory. Anything with sugar is going to be inflammatory. We take out grain because grain is is highly inflammatory, even beyond gluten. And grain, one of the biggest problems in grain is mold toxins, mycotoxins. And people don't realize that. One of the biggest problems in grain-based foods is pesticide. So we, we remove big chunks of classes of food, dairy, grain, sugar, sometimes nightshades, we look to, to to consume organic foods. Like, we can do all those things without any testing at all. Like, those things are free to do.
1: It's like baseline, got to go. Those things right. have, yeah.
0: Right, exactly. Baseline, got to go. Because, because even if they are healthy for you, the way they're being farmed and produced currently isn't healthy for you. So, like, some people would say, well, dairy's been around for hundreds of years, right? Why is it all of a sudden bad? Or grains have been around. It's in the Bible. Grains have been around for you know, thousands of years, why is it all of a sudden so bad? Well, some people are gluten sensitive and you may be one of the 30%, right? But beyond that, it's the farming practices and you're not going to escape the standard farming practices. You're not going to escape that if you're shopping at a regular grocery store. So we, we take those foods out, we eliminate them for a, it, it, at a bare minimum for a time to see what kind of changes in response we get. Because if we can start getting somebody to feel better, then the lesson here is that if you can recognize the importance of food as being something that can make or break the way you feel, then you learn the lesson. Once the lesson is learned, now you become more meticulous in your choices. Now you're learning that lesson that food is important, you just didn't realize it before. And so you can start paying closer attention to how different foods make you feel. Now, where I see people in my clinic is when they hit that plateau, right? They get to that point where they're better, but now they're still struggling and they don't know why. They think they've done the perceived things, they've changed their diet to that level, but they're still struggling. That's where individualized types of testing can be very, very effective at helping people identify really how to radically shift their diet in the right direction that, so it's unique for them as opposed to a generalized diet that, that is just kind of written for everybody to kind of try it first.
1: And what kind of lab tests should we be looking at? And I know a lot of people, I'd love to know your thoughts. I know that not everyone can get the testing that they want you know you think about the vets in the hospital and where they're at and can the generalized diet get us to a certain point if we're not able to get testing I know that's the ideal i was thinking about all the testing that we've i've done over the years for myself and all the supplements and and the care and I was realizing that's not necessarily always available to everybody, you know? So I was curious one, what the testing is. And then let's say someone's in a situation where they can't find a, you. you know, I get that email so often. I'm sure you do too. Like I live, I live in this place. I don't have access to these types of doctors. What else can I do?
0: Number one, there's three rules. I like to, I like to say mm-hmm. these rules are, are relatively free in this sense. Number one, you can't get healthy eating food that isn't healthy. So don't lie to yourself. Like self-honesty, self-love has to come first. Don't lie to yourself about what the food that you're eating. We all know that ice cream's not healthy. We know that excessive alcohol is not healthy. We know those things. So don't lie to yourself about what is and what is not healthy from a common sense perspective. Number two, listen to your body. If you eat something, and every time you eat it, your body gives you some type of internal or external symptom that says, hey, this I don't feel so good, or hey, why is this happening? You, you've you got to learn to listen to those messages. Your body will try to talk to you, and if you ignore that message and say, oh, it's not food, it's just me getting older, you're going to struggle. You're going to continue to have a problem. Number three, don't eat what you're allergic to. Now, there's there's different kinds of allergies. There's what we call acute allergy responses, which most people are familiar with. That's when you eat something like the kid with the peanut or the shellfish allergy, right? The lips swell, the throat constricts, the skin breaks out in hives. That's not what I'm talking about here. You, most people know if that happens, they, they, they know that's happening and they know to avoid that food. But I'm talking about subacute and delayed hypersensitivity responses. These are, these are inflammatory responses that can occur three hours to three weeks after exposure to the food. They almost work like a, like a virus that has an incubation period, right? And so it just, just serves if you get, a, get exposure to create a chronic inflammation. Now, if you've done rule number one and rule number two, if you're paying close attention, right, if, so if you don't have access to a, to a, to a great functional medicine doctor, or if you don't have access to the types of testing that can be done to help you identify this, you, one, I would recommend an elimination diet where you're paying really, really close attention and get as far as you can with that elimination diet. Many people feel fantastically better by implementing that strategy. Number two, we've got to combine that diet strategy with lifestyle and behavioral strategy. So there's, you know, I look at it as aside from diet, if you're paying attention to that, there's six other fundamentals that you want to make sure you're paying attention to. You've got sleep, exercise, clean air, clean water, stress management, and sunshine. If you are changing your diet, you want to think about those other six things and make sure that you're doing a good job in those areas too, because they all work synergistically together to help you heal. So as an example, let's say your diet's perfect, you've got it really dialed in, but you go to bed at two o'clock every night. You're not going to heal very well if you're doing that. You've got to combine all of these factors simultaneously. It's a mistake many people make. They piecemeal what they want to do because all of it together overwhelms them. And you can't, you, you can't let it overwhelm you. You've got to, even if it just takes you some time to wrap your mind around it and really start getting it implemented, don't let it overwhelm you. Because if you piecemeal it, if you say, okay, I'm going to try getting to bed on time for two weeks and see if that helps. And then it doesn't help because your, your diet is horrible, right? And then you say, well, now I'm going to fix my diet, but then you start going to bed at 2 a.m. again, right? You can't juggle which of those seven factors that you're going to implement and hope that you get better by only implementing a few of them at a time. You got to implement them all. Now, as far as testing is concerned, you know, if you're at a point where you've done all those things really well, and you feel like there's more room for improvement, my advice would be find a functional medicine doctor that the type of testing, there's seven different pathways your immune system can react down. So like, for example, Many of you may have heard of of immunoglobulins like IgG and IgA and IgM and IgE and there's IgD. Those are the five antibody responses that we can have. And those can be measured and they should be measured by somebody who's qualified to look at them and measure them. But subsequently, there are a couple of other immune pathways that should also be measured. One is called the immune complex pathway and the other is is a direct T cell response. So some people have... You know, they're reacting to their foods through their T cells or they're reacting through their foods through other protein processes or pathways like the immune complex pathway that can also create a problem. So all seven of those pathways should be being measured because what I see happen when a lot of people get to my office, they've already even been to a functional doc and they've had an IgG test done and that's all they've had done. So they've had one of the seven pathways measured and so they're missing a lot of information. They've got some important information, but they're missing a lot. So you definitely want to have all those things measured. The other thing I highly recommend people have measured from a lab perspective in the very, very beginning is don't rely on antibody tests to discern whether or not you're gluten sensitive. They're very, very misleading. And to understand, there are more than a thousand forms of gluten. And the, the testing that identifies gluten reactions is only looking at one form of those glutens. So you really, if you're going to, if you're really concerned whether or not you have a gluten sensitivity issue, genetic testing is what you need to ask for. Genetic testing for gluten sensitivity. The third testing I would recommend is, is check your nutritional status. Ask your doctor to measure your vitamin and your minerals and your amino acids, because you could be missing certain nutrients. Your diet and your lifestyle might be okay. But if you're missing, for example, let me give you an example, if you're missing magnesium, Magnesium deficiency causes an imbalance in the way you metabolize estrogen and progesterone. So your problems are still going to continue to persist even if all those other things are working right because your body doesn't have a nutrient that's necessary to properly metabolize those hormones. So you want to see what your body needs, what you can supplement with, what you can give your body in terms of what it's lacking. Remember that vitamins and minerals are the cornerstones, the building blocks. If you're building a house, you need bricks, you need wood, you need a foundation, right? Well, if you're building your body's house, you need vitamins and minerals. So measuring those things to make sure your body has what it needs is definitely one of those fundamental types of of sets of tests that need to be looked at to help you understand how you need to change your diet, what foods you need to eat more of, and what supplements you might need to add in your diet for a time to help your body repair.
1: Peter, thank you so much for giving us that kind of the lab analysis. It just at least opens the door, everyone, to what to look for specifically in a functional practitioner. So if you're doing all the right things and still not feeling 100%, then it's time to really start to look and dig deeper because so often, like you said, Peter, either it's some type of autoimmune situation or it's a nutrient deficiency. And there's a lot of women struggling. If you have been in that roller coaster of having cortisol issues, most likely you do have a deficiency of B6 and B vitamins, magnesium, vitamin D3, ferritin. I mean, name it. There's so many vitamins and minerals that can be off here. Now, Peter, honey, before we end, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this awesome giveaway because you know we talked about gut permeability today and understanding leaky gut. And a lot of people don't realize that the way that we eat or how we're functioning every single day is leading towards leaky gut, that even cortisol and stress levels lead towards gut permeability. And I know this is an area that we're just starting to really understand. I know you've been understanding for a while, but I know the average person still hasn't seemed to get an understanding of this. So can you tell me a little bit about this amazing guide that you've created?
0: Yeah. So what it is is it's a 60 plus page guide on, what are the causes of leaky gut and how you can eliminate those triggers from your lifestyle there you know one of the things we focus on are 11 very little discussed causes for example one of those is actually hot beverages a lot of people don't realize that that drinking super hot coffee for example can actually create leaky gut and so what do most people start off in their day they start off with a super hot beverage so that's just one example. There are 11 that we give in the book that, that uh, we're offering your audience for free, no charge, and just want to have, want them to have that information so that if their, if their habits match that corollary to leaky gut, we, we know they can change their habits and be empowered to improve. But there's also some, some things within the book that teach how to repair the gut. So once it is leaking, once it, once it is broken, aside from removing the things that created the leak, what do we need to do to accelerate the repair? And so that's, what the book really, really focuses on.
1: Mm, thank you so much. Cause you know, we think about, I think about Hajimoto's or hypothyroidism so often is connected to leaky gut as well. So this is definitely something that you're going to want to grab. Now, how you grab it, you guys is, well, you know, the deal, you're going to go to the show notes or go to the website and the link will be in there. Now, Dr. Peter Osborne, where else can we find you? Because you are a wealth of information. I know that you share on your Facebook lives, but you're on YouTube. Where can we learn more about what you're bringing to the table?
0: My wheelhouse of information where you can, you can learn so much is glutenfreesociety.org, O-R-G. And that's our foundation where we, you know, it's when I told you my story about Ginger, we created Gluten-Free Society so that we could share her story and the power of what we did with her for the rest of the world to get access to that information and overcome autoimmunity. So glutenfreesociety.org. There, we have a what's called a gluten-free survival kit that people can pick up for free as well. So if you go over there, you can learn more about us.
1: Perfect. Love it. Well, thank you so much for jumping on and sharing your wisdom with us today, which is so enlightening. A lot of lot to think about in terms of what we can be doing to get our bodies back on track. I just want to say thank you for jumping on and see you soon.
0: Thank you so much. And thanks for all you do as well. Your your information going out to so many wonderful women. Is life saving as well. And so it's always, always a pleasure to be on with somebody who shares a vision and a mission similar to my own.
1: You know what I love so much about Dr. Peter Osborne is that he tells it to you straight. It's obvious that Dr. Peter is on a mission, and it's clear from his messaging that he feels very strongly about certain foods in our environment and how they impact our health. One of the biggest things that I get asked a lot is understanding what is going on with leaky gut and how that can impact our hormones, particularly our thyroid hormones and creating inflammation even inside of the brain. A lot of the terminology that I'm hearing today and I've done some extensive research on is even going so far as to talk about having a leaky brain similar to having a leaky gut. Well, Dr. Peter Osborne has been studying this for 15 plus years and he breaks down the exact steps on how you can break through from autoimmune pain. If you're interested in Dr. Osborne's Leaky Gut Solutions Guide, I'm going to invite you to grab it in the show notes or just head to drmarisa.com slash episode 80. Well, I just want to say thank you again for stopping by in on the Essentially You podcast. I am actually recording this in Mexico right now, so I know it may sound a little bit different than normal, but it was such a pleasure to have you join me today. On the next episode, I am thrilled to be bringing on Dr. Shauna Silverstein. She is the author of Moodtopia and is the expert on how to get in control of your moods. So they're not in control of you. Now what I love so much about Sarah is her usage of herbs and essential oils for helping to support mood, which is such a major area that I love to explore and research. So we're going to be diving deep into this conversation on the next episode. And I hope that you guys enjoy her interview as much as I did. Until then, have an amazing day.